Take me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let us read verses 1 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let us hear God's word. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, He shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. A sense the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, this evening, I will not seek to uh, preach through this text in any uh, serious way. um, But I do think it is an excellent text kind of open um, the floodgates and for us to really think about missions, uh, hopefully uh, in some new ways. Um, Paul clearly is distinguishing himself from Apollos. Um, There's been some division there, and clearly Paul is going to seek to rectify that in this book. But have you noticed that his focus is upon the Lord's work, and he describes the Lord's work in two phases, planting and watering, or foundation building and building upon the foundation. So he uses two illustrations. He kind of goes back and forth. 
One illustration, the, the agricultural illustration, actually seems to be a little bit more Hebraic in its formation. And then the, it seems that the Greco-Roman illustration is more of the building. You know, when Paul is addressing a congregation or congregations there in Corinth uh, that would have been compromised, you know, would have been composed of Jews and Gentiles. And so he uses two illustrations that are helpful for us to make a distinction. But he very clearly says, though the two works are somewhat different, he and Apollos are one. The purpose is the same. He goes on to suggest that we must be very careful about the foundation. When a planter goes planting or goes foundation building, he better make sure the foundation which he's preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ must be placarded in his preaching. He must glory in the cross and must proclaim the, the work of the cross, the foolishness of the cross. Uh, but then clearly he goes on to say, a faithfulness is not only required in the planter, it's also required in the waterer. And this faithfulness is going to ref be reflected in how the church is built. And, and I, I, I actually am sympathetic to R.L. Dabney's position and his understanding of this text, as we find in his discussions. He suggests that this is related to the care in which a minister and elders take in terms of evaluating um, credible professions. Now, he's not suggesting that ministers and elders can have x-ray vision and can tell who has a, um, who's regenerate and who's not. But we all know from experience, don't we, ministries where haste, there's much haste in the way people are incorporated into the church, right, and are baptized with very little understanding and very little opportunity to express their understanding of the gospel to the leaders of so-called Christian congregation, Christian churches. We all know what that's like. I believe Paul's dealing with that here. Um, we clearly see in the epistles that Paul was very aware of men that had risen up uh, and were in the gospel ministry for the wrong reasons. And they sought to deceive, and oftentimes Paul describes them as being uh, interested in filthy lucre or children dirty money and that's not money that's like dirty like Liberian dollars that get filthy because of all the dust it's filthy money because it's not properly earned money and right? it's not through legitimate service or work that that money has been earned so here Paul calls for faithfulness he's suggesting that the church planter the church builder, the minister who is engaged in planting primarily or the minister that's engaged in watering primarily, he and his elders must seek to be faithful. They cannot be hasty. Haste is not a faith. They must wait upon the Lord. It's the Lord that gives the increase. And so we don't set numerical goals for the increase. And we don't find ways to make sure we meet our goals. We don't cook the books by lowering the standard for church membership, entrance into the church, and then maintaining good standing in the church. It cannot be done. 
And so I just wanted to open kind of with a brief survey of that passage. We begin to think about reforming missions. Now, obviously, we all know the evangelical church is disoriented on many fronts today. They've lost their way. And that's why we're, as an evangelical church in America, having very little effect on the culture. We're being squeezed in by the culture oftentimes more than we're affecting and being salt and light and transforming the culture. That's just the way it is. But it's true also that many Reformed churches are to a great degree disoriented, confused, about the path forward, what they're called to do, and how they should glorify God in their efforts. And so I want to focus on just one area here where we need to return to the old paths, where we need to to take a stand for a minute, can stop, look, consider, ask God for help, and then see the way that he would lead us. And the way that he would lead us, we know from Scripture is the same way he's led his people all along. The good old path, where we find rest for our souls, where we're not constantly looking for a new model of evangelism or church planting or missions. We're not trying to repackage things and come up with new names so we have new models and new books and new prophets. While we pretend like we're growing the church rather than following God's orders and allowing him to grow the church in his time as we're faithful to his orders, as we fulfill the job description he's given us as individuals and as a corporate body, as congregations and presbyteries and denominations. So I will not be seeking to dissect the church planting movement, the disciple-making movement, the insider movement, so many other movements within broad evangelicalism. I could name a hundred of them, and it would take a long time to go through them, and most of you probably don't know them, and it would be obvious to you immediately that that's dangerous, that that's not biblical. So there's no reason for me to engage in that. But there are fads that still come and go in the reform circle as well. C.S. Lewis said, fads come and go, they mostly go. (laughs) They mostly go. Um, So let's start with the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14 through 4.2 clearly tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I believe there is a chiasm there. I think many men find more chiasms than there are in Scripture. But I believe Paul is telling us the Word of God tells us how to think, how not to think, how not to live, and then how to live. That's the four things he tells us Scripture does. It covers theory and practice. It covers positive and negative. And the word of God is sufficient, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient for this task. And so we who believe in sola scriptura rather than sola cultura 
need to turn to the scriptures. I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase semper reformata. The church is reforming. It actually comes from a larger phrase uh, that one of the Dutch theologians of the Second uh, Reformation in Netherlands came came up with in mid, mid to late 1600s. The phrase is ecclesia reformata, semper reformata, secundum verbe dei. In other words, the church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. Now, obviously, if we start dissecting that phrase, we could see that it's not always, if we look at it scientifically, we could say it's not really accurate. The church isn't always reforming. Sometimes it's deforming. And in the context, Jacobus von Ludenstein was really trying to get at the fact that the church had been reformed in its outward form. And he was concerned about reformation continuing inwardly. He was very concerned with formalism. And the Second Reformation in the Netherlands was a reaction to formalism that had arisen in the Reformed Church in the Netherlands or in Holland. So that's what's going on there. I don't know if you know this, but this phrase has been hijacked by progressives today in the Reformed movement. Always looking for some change, some innovation, some tweaking away from Scripture. Oh, this is just semper reformata. Church is always reforming, so it's, we can just change things as we go. That's deviating from the old paths. It's walking away into a bypath. And so though this term's been hijacked by progressives, I think it's still a legitimate term to use for us to think about theological progress in terms of our thinking and in our practice. And to do so, we've got to be positive and we have to be negative. We have to say, this is wrong, this is right. Now, for me to cover all the rights and wrongs of theory and practice in missions would take extremely long time. So, let's move on. Let's remember, and I was thinking about this this week, an old song by a man named Pat Terry. Anybody ever heard of Pat Terry? Any of you that old? Pat Terry used to sing a song I remember as a young Christian. We've got to get back to the Bible or we're liable to be running in the wrong direction. Can somebody... We'll try to turn this off, excuse me. Here we go. Reverend Dr. Rudell has said... And I've heard it this morning, or this afternoon, in his truck, that he thinks the book of Acts is the mission manual of the church. You did say that, didn't you? So I accurately have conveyed the truth, that which corresponds with reality, children. I hope you're learning some logic. In In one statement, that's sufficient, but more could have been said about that, right? Because the book of Acts doesn't come to us de novo by itself. It comes in the middle of 66 books, right? It's 
It has a foundation. There's a flow. There's a meta story. Uh, the book of Acts is founded on Jesus' work and his ministry in the Gospels. Jesus' work is a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. God fulfilling what he told Adam and Eve he would do, what he told Abraham he would do in making him a father of the nations. And so it's in that context that we have the book of Acts. And then we have the epistles. And they're more mission-oriented than we often recognize. Just think of, I'll just name two books that are significantly missional in their framework. Think about the book of Romans. Paul is saying, I've completed the work that I need to do in Asia and the western part of Europe. There's obviously much more gospel work to be done by others. But he says, I've done enough there. I'm moving on. But I need to present to you the gospel that I've been proclaiming. And I'm going to present that gospel in a systematic way. But I'm also going to draw in the mega story, the meta story of biblical theology. He's going to continue to go back to David and Abraham. He's going to remind them that the law came after the promise and how important that was in understanding the gospel. And then he's going to do that all to say, hey, I want to come to you. I want to edify you. I want you to edify me. But then I want you to support me as I go to Spain. I want you to be my sending presbytery. I'm going to have to move presbyteries because the world's a pretty big world. Very church planning oriented. How about the book of Titus? Here the Apostle Paul is in the island of Crete with Titus. They've been going to various cities. They've been preaching the gospel evangelistically. Little pockets of groups of believers have been raised up. Paul has to leave. Enough time has taken place. Paul knows enough from Titus and maybe other people that have contacted him that it's time for elder nominations, training, examinations, ordinations. And Paul is sort of a walking, talking presbytery. He by himself could could tell that evangelist, that apostolic representative, Titus, you can carry that out by yourself. None of these are churches. You're the only one representing the church. Go do this. And he does it. And the book gives us some information about qualifications of elders, duties of elders, kind of what are some of the dominant themes that need to be focused on in early church worship and teaching sessions to the various groups of people in that island, given who they were, given their cultural sins, what what would be the temptations that they would be facing and the scriptural issues that needed to be addressed really early on in the establishment of that congregation. So we see the scriptures, and particularly the gospel of uh, book of Acts tells us much. And obviously the book of Acts requires a little bit extra uh, interpretation for us. Does it, right, there are apostles in it. We don't have apostles any longer. There were still uh, temporary gifts that were going on as well. All right, so there are some things that we have to interpret based on 
our place in redemptive history. Um, there was a man named Roland Allen. Uh, he was a missionary in the Anglican Church, and he wrote a book called Missionary Methods, Paul's or Ours. Have you ever heard of that? Anybody heard of that book? It's got to become popular again amongst hasty church planters. And Roland was critiquing a formal Anglican mission of the set up the mission compound, um, English Anglicans, we're going to be here for hundreds of years, and we've got to uh, establish civilized people before we start taking the gospel to them. That was kind of their method, right? And he's rebuking that. He's critiquing that, and that's good. But as he reads Acts, he seems to think that Paul just went somewhere, preached a few times, and then moved on and just let, left the native people, the indigenous people, to their own ways to kind of create their own church, their own way. And so that has become a popular book again amongst many church planters uh, that want some justification uh, for what they're doing. Clearly, he failed to recognize some of the unique situations that occurred in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul also, the many advantages to world missions that existed in the fullness of times in terms of the Pax Romana, the common language, and the like that become somewhat more difficult for us today. So, in my doctoral thesis, I identified 16 major areas or loci of missions. And I obviously can't cover them all tonight, but I want to cover four or five, and I want to focus on positively, mostly, what these principles mean and how they should be applied in the church. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to give you a couple questions that you should, should ask yourself when you're thinking about missions and when you're interacting with Reformed brethren uh, from other denominations and you're talking about church planting, evangelism, missions, questions that could be asked that, that might help them think through, hmm, wonder why our priorities aren't exactly biblical priorities. So that's where I want to go. Let's first consider the principle of the centrality of church planting in missions. I would like to think that's pretty obvious to everyone here, <laughs> but it has to be stated that there are many Reformed folks that have lost that principle. The centrality, the primacy, not the exclusivity of church planting. There are many ancillary functions that support church planting, but church planting is at the core. It's what the apostles understood the Great Commission to be. Right? They were given the Great Commission in different flavors in the different Gospels and in the book of Acts. And then we see how they carried it out in the book of Acts, don't we? They understood that the church was the pillar and ground of the truth. They understood that the church uh, and new churches planted in foreign lands were new embassies of the kingdom of God. And they wanted to see ambassadors raised up in those new embassies to represent the king of kings and the lord of lords. And they knew 
as the Apostle Paul knew and could say that it was through the church in Ephesians 3.10 that God's manifold witness, his multifaceted wisdom is displayed in the church. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Sometimes what goes on in the church today doesn't look like it's displaying the wisdom of God. And yet God has said it, and so it is so. And so we need to believe it. Let's just give a couple examples of seeing church planting as central. Think about the book of Acts, Acts 11 through 26. 11, 19 through 26. Do you remember the situation here? There's been a persecution in Jerusalem. Many have been scattered. They begin to speak the word of peace. They begin to speak, publish the word. And then they even begin, certain men begin to speak to the Gentiles. And something's happening there in Antioch. And it says the church in Jerusalem heard what's going on. Now that's a long, long way away, children. How did they hear? Probably through letters. Do you think when their parishioners, the people that were members of their churches, had to leave because they were scattered, do you think that the apostles still cared about them? Do you think they would have tried to communicate with them, even though communication lines would have been much more difficult? And when they found out that they've been scattered and they're still proclaiming the word of God and people are coming to faith, they send a trusted, experienced man, Barnabas, down on an exploratory visit. Now, this is one of the unique cases where it's not clear they sent two. The general pattern throughout Scripture, right, even in the sending of the 12 and the sending of the 70s, two by two. This is a little extraordinary But Barnabas gets down there. He's been sent by the church in Jerusalem. He recognizes this is a big job. I need some help. He goes to check Paul, goes to get Paul. You think he did that on his own? I don't think so. Interpret scripture with scripture. I don't think that Barnabas would have thought it was he could go get anybody he wanted to be his partner there. But even though he's sent by himself, he's going to go get another man. And they're going to labor there, the church planting the church. Now, this is just one way in which a church can be started. People scattered, proclaiming the word of God. Right? There are other ways we're going to see um, in the next passage. Just think about Acts 13, 1. So now this church in Antioch that's flourishing has five teacher prophets in it we're told in 13.1 what's interesting is they have a man named Niger likely a black man they also have a man named Mananin which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch they had different races men of different socioeconomic situations in the this presbytery I would contend in the form of government Westminster form of government 
there's actually a great argument and deduction. I think it's a good and necessary inference that the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and clearly Ephesus at minimum were presbyteries. There were more than one congregation. And you'll notice in Scripture sometimes it talks about churches in a region and sometimes it talks about the church singular in a region, right, representing the churches. There's a distinction to be made, and yet there's a unity that needs to be expressed as well. That's what's going on. Well, I believe here we have at least five men in the teaching-preaching office. I don't believe this is all the ruling elders. These are five pastor-teachers. And I believe it's pretty clear that Paul and Barnabas trained the other three, and now the Lord says to the five, send the two most mature men out for this work. But it's the church. It's the church leadership. There's things that are unsaid here. We can't answer all the questions. Where, where's the, where are the ruling elders? Um, I don't think they're left out. Again, ter- ter- interpreting scripture by scripture, we could assume that they would have been engaged because that's God's polity that he's established. And I would argue the goal of this first missionary journey and the others was not just to plant random churches, various places. It was to plant presbyteries of indigenous peoples with officers so that these churches could be maintained and then could flourish on their own and could multiply by themselves. But significantly, the church has drifted from the focus of church planting. And so is the Reformed Church. David Livingston said, the best remedy for a sick church is to put it on a missionary diet. And by experience, I've seen that in our own churches. In the last 10 years or so, our congregations are small, very small presbytery, seven churches, Um, But the Lord has given us opportunities to minister in urban situations in South Providence and then in Liberia in what I would call a a Macedonian call. We didn't get a vision, but some man wrote a letter to us. And we followed up and we came and visited. And we thought this is a place that the Lord would have us to serve. So I think we could ask ourselves that we're thinking about other denominations, other Reformed churches, and ourselves, we could ask ourselves the question, what percent of missions giving is towards church planting? And the answer doesn't have to be 100%. There are other legitimate ministries, but where's church planting fit? Is it central? Is it significant? Is it primary in the thoughts as your budgeting missions kind of works. Second principle, the church as the sending agent. Can you imagine that there are men and women training men and women to be pastors of churches that aren't pastors and have not been trained and ordained themselves? 
They're not sent by the church, but they're going to plant. They're going to help people learn how to plant churches. Very common, and it's common even in reformed circles. Sad to say, we could return again to Acts eleven nineteen and twenty six to see that it's the church sending men to church plant. Same with Acts thirteen one. How about Romans 15, 23, and 24? Again, Paul's saying, I want to go to Spain. I need somebody to oversee this work. I'm an apostle. And I still am going to be reporting to somebody. Remember, Paul reported and had accountability to the churches in Antioch. Uh, in Acts 14, as they return on the first missionary journey, we read uh, in verse 25 and following, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Lots of principles there. Obviously, Luke is trying to get everything in a volume that's going to be about the size of the book of Luke. He's summarizing things. There's more he could have said. I suspect that they met with the elders at some point and not just the whole church. But they met with the whole church as well. They had an opportunity to tell as many as could attend to hear what, not what they had done, what God had done in opening the door of faith unto the Gentiles. God had been doing this work through them, his instruments, and they came and spoke to glorify him about what he was doing in their midst. And they abode a long time. They probably recharged their batteries. They had an opportunity to sit under the ministry of the other pastor teachers in Antioch. They probably had opportunity to preach themselves, which can be exhausting, but can also be very refreshing uh, when you're proclaiming the word of God to people that you'd grown to love and hadn't seen for a while and now are in their presence, you're going to leave them again. And so we see the church int- intimately connected with these missionaries. And we also see uh, in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, that it was not only the church's in Antioch that supported Paul financially. They were the primary sending presbytery. But once the church was planted at Philippi, Paul says a number of times you sent monies to us to help with defraying the costs of these labors. Now recognize this is another important biblical principle of missions. Paul and Barnabas did not take money or have offerings amongst the churches when they were evangelistically preaching to people. In their initial going somewhere, and we see that particularly in 1 Thessalonians 2, 
I didn't ask anything. I'm an apostle. I'm not asking anything of you. And it doesn't even look like he asked the churches in Philippi. They just had been blessed, and they'd like to see other people come and serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They and their forefathers have been serving a usurper king. And now an ambassador of the King of kings had come to them. God had brought an ambassador, and he set his spirit to work in them, and many of them have been drawn to a saving knowledge of Christ. And now they want to see others come to that saving knowledge. They want to see other embassies established in the dark land of the usurper. And so that's what they want, and that's why they did it, out of love for Christ, out of gratitude for their great salvation. It was Hudson Taylor, the great uh, missionary uh, to China, that said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. God will provide. When he calls someone somewhere, calls a church to minister somewhere, he will provide the funds necessary to do the work. Now, this this principle is also closely related to qualifications. Would you be surprised if I told you that the church has not always sent its best theologians and pastors to the mission field? Would it surprise you that often lower educational and experience standards are applied for missionaries than are for pastors in their own culture? It doesn't look like in Acts 13 that is what happened when they sent Barnabas and Paul. They didn't send the new guys. They didn't send the guys that had only been to Bible school. The other guys had been to seminary. They didn't send the guys that just are a little awkward and can't really pastor in their own culture very well. Let's just send them somewhere else. It's interesting. James W. Alexander, professor at Princeton, said this as he gave a talk to seminary students. Now, this is at a time in Princeton when approximately one-third of all the graduates that graduated from Princeton went into foreign missions. This is the heyday of Northern Presbyterian missions. He says to these candidates, candidates for the sacred office, he's referring to them, are too much accustomed to think, I will prepare myself to serve God as a preacher in my native land, and if I should be specially moved and loudly called, I will become a foreign missionary. Here, this is altogether an error, he says, and an error so great that we need not to be surprised to find him who harbors it as really unfitted for the ministry at home as he supposes himself to be for the ministry abroad. In other words, ministerial students don't know where God's going to call them, and they go where God's calls them. That's the way to study and prepare for the ministry. He may call you right back to your hometown. He may call you right where you want to be and he may call you exactly where you don't want to be and sometimes you don't want to be in your hometown and that's exactly where he sends you 
And that's a good principle. We don't really know. We go where the Lord sends us, and we go where the Lord sends us by oftentimes his direction through the men that we have submitted to in our presbytery and in God's providence. Why was I sent to do an exploratory visit in Liberia? Only because of the situations of some of the other men in the presbytery. They didn't say, oh, Worrell, he, he's definitely going to fit in with Africans. That, that's definitely the guy. You know, he's got the, I like cleanliness. I like order. I like air conditioning. I don't like sleeping with rats. Um, it's, you know, but when we went and we saw the Lord had a place for us there, then he gave me a love for the people that I would not have ever expected, right? And God does that to ministers wherever he calls them. He gives them a special love for his people that they're called to. So we've not always sent the best. And we've often, too often, the church, or let's say Christians, send people to go do things uh, or people think they're called and then go ask mom and dad's friends for a little bit of money every month so they can go somewhere and plant churches. Though they've never been approved and they've never served in a local church. Clearly, that's wrong. I would encourage you to consider, if you haven't read John Murray's work on Christian missions and collected writings, I'm sure you have a copy or two in the library. Yeah, please consider pulling that out. It's an excellent work on the church as the agent of missions. And I'm going to mention Murray a couple times today. I know your pastor gave me a little ditty uh, earlier today in the truck again about Murray. Uh, I can't remember it exactly, but he said when he's good, he's good, and kind of when he's bad, he's pretty bad. That, that's, that's kind of summarized. A little, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to give you some of the best, some of the cream of the crop of Murray that I don't know anybody else has kind of spoken the same way on, on these few things related to missions. So related to that, is it right for us to ask ourselves when we're considering a church or denomination in missions to ask what percentage of individuals sent as missionaries are ordained ministers? I don't want to debate the definition of a missionary. That's not really worthwhile. Um, Could a retired doctor and his wife choose to go to China and buy a building and set it up so little businesses in China could rent the building and then they have a little place where they're helping Christians medically and then trying to help the house churches quietly. Are they missionaries? I'm not going to say they're not. And if God raised up some couple like that from your church, you would send them, you would help support them prayerfully, financially, and it's valid and it can be helpful. But it seems like there's been a mission drift for years in Reformed churches, and there's more and more of that and more, of, more and more of social gospel kind of missions that's divorced from the local church. Right? And diaconal work has its place as it's connected to the local churches that are being planted. 
but it's not just feeding the hungry in the nations. You as the church scattered, you as individuals could give money to things that help provide food or water to somebody anywhere around the world. But that's not what the scriptures tell you your leaders are to be engaged in as they order the church corporate, right? the church gathered. So we need to remember that. Just one thing I, I reminded myself of this week, and I'm not making this as a suggestion for your congregation, your presbytery, our presbytery, but Calvin in the Institutes actually suggested that he kind of liked the rule of thumb of Gregory. Now, Gregory wasn't a pope. People say he was, but I'm sure the bishops uh, in the East did not view him as the pope. But he suggested, and obviously they're thinking about a very large church, right, number of churches, he suggested that 25 of the percent of the income should be for the maintenance of the buildings and all that goes on in running congregations and educational institutions. 25% should be for supporting the laborers, predominantly the ministers, but maybe there could, would still be some staff and stuff. You have educational institutions. 25% should be spent on diaconal giving, locally or globally, and 25% for church planting missions to support men that have been educated through the educational system of the church and sent out. Now, obviously, in our small denominations, we can't necessarily achieve those kind of numbers, and it's only a rule of thumb. We can't make any law in Zion concerning those things, but it just kind of sets a priority. You just kind of see Calvin's priority. When you think about the history of Geneva and how many out of the seminary there they sent to France uh, to be martyred. Um, it's amazing. You know, they were much like Prince. Princeton was much like Geneva uh, in that regard. I think also something we have to remind ourselves is we have mission drift regarding the motive for missions. The motives for missions. What's in the forefront of the heart of the missionary and those that send the missionary regarding the motivation. Is it to be a hero? Is it to do your own thing? On the mission field, you can kind of do your own thing. You don't get a whole lot of oversight. You don't have a whole lot of visitors that are going to go tell the other presbyters what's going on in your work, in your labors. And the reality is, is it to do almost nothing? You know, Charles Spurgeon said of ministers, they're either some of the most diligent men in the world or they're some of the most lazy. They're rarely in the middle in terms of their work ethic. And so it is with missionaries. And so it can easily become, when you get there in the field, that the diaconal needs are so great and everybody's always got a problem to be met that a missionary can very easily be distracted and lose the focus of proclaiming the word of God. So what are some of the most biblical motives? How about the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is prominent in your prayer life here in this congregation. Think of the first three petitions. Hallowed be thy name. 
Is that not the chief motive for missions? We must ever guard ourselves to make sure that it is. Thy kingdom come. Right? The increase of the church until the Lord's return. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means we're to pray not only for quantitative growth, but qualitative growth. We want to see people obey the Lord promptly and cheerfully like the angels do in heaven. Children, have your parents ever told you that's the way you're to obey them? Cheerfully, promptly, just like the angels? And parents, that's just the way we're to obey those that are in authority over us as they speak the word of God. We're also to plant churches in our cultural settings as well as cross-cultural settings because of our love to God and our love to man. Because of the first and second commandment, which are intimately connected. Right, the rich young ruler only asked Jesus about the great commandment. Right? But or the man that asked him of it, he actually gives him the first, but he gives him the second too. He's not going to just give him the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Children, if your friend's home next door, if you have a friend next door at home and their house is on fire, will you just sit back and not Yet go in or yell to that house, fire, fire. Will you not call them to wake up if they're taking a nap or they're at, at night and you just come home with your parents and you see their house in flames? Are you going to say anything? Are you going to try to make sure they get out? Well, do you recognize that so many people in your neighborhood, some in your extended family, in your workplace adults, in your schools, children, there are many that are just going towards hell. They know not God. They obey not the gospel. And if they die in their sins, they're going to be punished eternally. And that is a serious thing. Should we not warn them? Because we love them. Because we're called to love them. And then I would also argue, I don't have a better term for it. The theological necessity of missions, when we think about God's plan for the world, his plan for the age, for all of history. I'll just give you one passage. Just think about John 10, where Jesus tells the disciples, I have other sheep. We're sheep, but he has other sheep. And until the Lord returns, there are other sheep to be gathered. And we know that in heaven there'll be people from all tribes, races, kindreds, and tongues worshiping the Lamb. And so what's in the forefront of the heart or the motivation for missions? We've got to always remind ourselves, what are we in this for? Is it now just to have 
the most impressive prayer letter that anyone's ever seen. Are we making efforts to video things so we can impress people in our prayer letters or pictures or what have you? Easy to fall into, especially when you're seeking to be faithful and you're seeing little fruit, apparent fruit. But God calls us to faithfulness, not success, and certainly not success in the world's eyes. So one more, probably this evening. Let's think about the goals of church plants. What are the goals? Any of you familiar with the 3S movement? Ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of Nevius? Right, who was a missionary in China. He went to Korea and presented, really, it was almost more of things that he learned out of experience, more than that he learned from exegeting the scriptures. But he came to the conclusion that when they paid Chinese men to be ministers and they weren't self-sufficient, that the work didn't proceed. And so they said, our goal is to have self-governed, self-sufficient, and self-propagating churches. Good goals. Today we like to say that they can be summarized in the word indigenization. But now many have another three S's. Size, speed, and scope. How fast can you plant them? How big can you plant them? And scope, how fast can you multiply them? That, that's the epitome. That's the metrics that many missionaries use today. Certainly not biblical. Carrie and um, Marshman, yeah, that's right, Marshman and Martin, right, they wrote a document called the Serampur Agreement after they had been in India for about 10 years. In Article 8, they said, indigenization is the only means of native preachers that we can hope for the universal spread of the gospel throughout this immense continent. It's only by the means of native preachers that we can hope for the universal spread of the gospel throughout this immense context. I will preach evangelistically at times in Liberia, but I am not the most effective evangelistic preacher in Liberia. Men who have come to understand the gospel, the same the gospel that I understand and the way I understand, they can proclaim the gospel to their people much better than I can. And so they went on to say that they believe national church leaders, in other words, missionaries, ought to have the church leaders choose, quote, choose their pastors and deacons from amongst their own countrymen that the word may be statedly preached and the ordinances of Christ administered in each church by the native minister. They go on to say this should be done without interference of foreign missionaries. Very, very 
good principle. Now, interference does not include assistance. Clearly, Titus would have assisted in the nomination meetings and the selection of ruling elders in Crete. It's obvious in Acts 14 that when Paul and Barnabas return uh, in this counterclockwise circle to these cities where they had evangelistically preached, that they were engaged in the ordination of the elders. Right? But that word ordination, the ordain there in the, in the Greek, refers to the raising of a hand, suggests votes. So they were involved, and the people in those groups, those communities were involved. It was an intimate connection there. So I think that's important for us to realize. What's amazing is that in America, Scottish Presbyterians, the Dutch, and Korean Presbyterians have failed in this regard. And you see the fruits of it in the formalism in some of their churches. They become cultural ghettos. They can't adapt, and they don't want people that can't adapt to their cultural norms in their churches. And it becomes hard for them to separate their cultural norms from the biblical norms. And so when we hold too tightly to circumstances in church government or in worship, and just in daily living that we hold so tightly, then people that don't agree with those are going to not be comfortable coming through our doors. And we see it in our own nation, and yet we still go try to do the same thing in foreign missions way too often. That doesn't mean that I'm opposed to expatriate churches. I mean, when there's immigrants that come to a certain nation, they may need to worship in their own culture with their own language for a time but at some point their culture has got to change so that they can adapt and be willing to bring in people of other cultures now that's not to say we need to pray that our church reflects all the various races of the world why do I say that because not all of our churches live in places where everybody in the world lives in our community. I mean, if we're in the South and we're 70% white and 29% black and 1% everything else, we can't expect to have a whole lot of Asians in there because there's almost nobody there. There's nobody in our nation or community that's Asian. But nothing would be wrong if it reflected the different ethnic and racial differences of the community in which the church is planted. And if we're focused on biblical principles, we will be comfortable with people that are different in the unessential, the non-important, because they're with us, they're unified with us in doctrine and practice. And so what are some of the dangers of indigenization? It can be taken too far. We can go way too fast 
in church membership interviews in foreign situations, in cross-cultural situations, when we don't even understand the culture, so we can't really properly interpret what people are telling us. And in many cultures, particularly in the African culture, when I ask for a question and answer, nobody has any questions. It took me a while to figure out that it's because it would be shameful to them to give me to, answer, to say a question as though they didn't understand something. But then when you ask them questions, you find they really didn't understand a whole lot you had to say. And that's the danger of plug, what I call plug-and-play Western theological training. And I'm calling it theological training, not ministerial training. Theological education is not exactly the same as ministerial training. Theological education is important, and they can dovetail, but they're not absolutely the same thing. Just giving somebody some MP3s or MP4s to listen to and work through does not necessarily create a Reformed minister that's going to be able to plant Reformed churches who's never experienced life in a Reformed church. Worship, government, fellowship, community. It's not going to happen. Much less experience the inner workings of diaconal deacons meetings and session meetings and presbytery meetings and installation services and ordinations and administering the Lord's Supper and administering baptisms and funerals and weddings and the things that are involved before and after those unique events. Much less the visitation of the sheep some 30, some 60, some 100-fold believers, some with much more baggage than others. And the reality is in a disintegrating culture, you can expect in your churches, our culture is changing itself. Right? The culture that I preached the gospel to 30 years ago is different than it is today. It's not the same. And I can't just live in my study, and Pastor Rudell just can't live in his study and live in the 1600s or the 1500s and come and forget that when he comes into this place. He's got to bring the, the learning of the scriptures that's relevant for all ages, that's, that's right for all ages, but he's still got to bring it into the culture of this congregation. And if you can't do it in your own culture, you're not going to be prepared to do it in another culture. And so I would argue that we need to have experienced men going in to do cross-cultural missions. And cross-cultural missions does not have to be going to another country. I would argue that um, doing evangelism in some of the inner cities is a bigger cross cross-cultural movement that I'm making going to Liberia. But we need to be thorough in church membership, in examinations and preparation and standards for church leadership. Uh, we often also, I think, in indigenization and in trying to speed up the process, we neglect any serious training and, and teaching on worship and government. And in the African context, that's where the rub comes. 
they're willing to listen and learn and adopt generally a reformed position in terms of soteriology and in theology. But when it comes to worship, now ministers and elders have to convince their whole congregations, many who practice worship practices based on emotions and their experiences in, and their tribal experiences and the experiences of their forefathers in some kind of African traditional religion, right? And most of their exposure to Western Christianity is through, I can't even remember the, the charismatic uh, cable network that's on there, but like Pat Robertson and all, all those kind of people. That's the kind of people they see. You know, mass evangelists, many who disappear from those screens because of some kind of, you know, some kind of scandal here or there, right? But that's what they think Christianity in America is. Well, that presents a problem when you come and say, that's not the Christianity I'm bringing. That's not the, that's not the God I serve. That, I'm not the ambassador of that kind of God. So worship is very important. If you, if you allow a, a new congregation to adopt unbiblical practices from the get-go, right? if they're synergistic, um, not synergistic, um, why am I stuck on synergistic? What's the term? Um, it's where you're adopting both um, syncretistic. I know that, but syncretistic worship. If you allow them to start in syncretic worship and you've indigenized them, so you've got to get out of there fast because you want the locals to run the show. You're not going to be able to break that a year or two or three into. That's not going to be broken. It's got to start from the start. We're going to worship the king the way the king says to worship. Simple illustration I've used uh, in Liberia to church that I preached in. As I said, just imagine if when we finish the worship service today, the president of Liberia sends an ambassador and has a special letter for you and says that president has a special assignment for you and he wants you to meet him tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And in this letter, you're going to find five or ten requirements as to how you're to approach him. Will you follow those requirements? Will you do anything different than them? Will you begin to say, well, he didn't say anything about this, so I can just kind of come. He didn't say anything about my shoes. He did tell me that I'm supposed to be properly attired, but he never mentioned my shoes. Maybe I can just ignore that. Maybe that doesn't have to be consistent with the clothing. No. No innovation. All of them are like, yeah, we do that. Well, then I say, well, then will you serve the king of kings that way? If you're willing to serve your president, former soccer player uh, in England, why wouldn't you do that for the king of kings? Why do you think you can approach him any way you want? And he's going to be happy with that. But it's hard going. Also, worship. I mean, government, excuse me. There are in Africa, and I'm sure in other cultures, there's different ways people 
behave in different governmental structures, but in Africa, the chieftain mentality is very, very deep. So there's inherent tyranny, and pastors apply that just as though they were a chieftain of a community. And they do not want to give up power to ruling elders. And so when you try to deal with churches that are already established, already syncretistic in worship, already have a solo pastor with no elders, very hard to break those patterns. And so those patterns have to be broken early, and they have to be taught for a while, sometimes years before ever you're ever prepared to ordain leaders in a local group of believers, of professing believers. So that's just some of the dangers of indigenization, especially if you're trying to go extremely fast. What's interesting is oftentimes missionaries in years past who had gone to biblical seminaries like Princeton began to send indigenous men to Princeton after Princeton had gone liberal. So then the men come back with a Princeton degree but they don't come back with the same theology that the missionary that went there 30 years ago had. Then, we, then there's a hyper-contextualization today where we just think we can just adopt the culture and culture is, is what dominates. We also live in a post-culture, a post-colonial movement, right? So colonialism has been just painted so bad, everything's got to be thrown out. Uh, all that Western missionaries were ever doing was bringing their own culture over, so therefore, don't trust anything. And so therefore, plenty of false gospels, prosperity gospel, liberation theology, social justice, cultural transformation movements dominate here. And so that's what most missionaries are doing there. And they're preaching, obviously, a truncated gospel. Right, and most of it's Arminian. So these are, can really be false goals. We need to make sure that the churches we're planting are serious about their worship, like the churches that are sending them. They're serious about education and discipleship that are committed to the communion of saints or fellowship and are committed to witness with leaders that meet the qualifications for office and fulfill the functions of office as they seek to order the church in its worship, its discipleship, its fellowship, its witness, overseeing the church corporately as well as seeking to shepherd each and every individual in the congregation. Seek to, to seek to be engaged in seeking the maturity of every single individual within the congregation. These are the things that I think are important. There are many of other things that are important, but hopefully I gave you five primary principles of biblical church planting, missions, evangelism. I think they're all somewhat synonymous when you really get down to it because if you have a Hindu move, in through a house next to you, you're going to have to do cross-cultural evangelism. <laughs> you're going to have to find out a little bit more about what, what they believe, 
and they don't necessarily believe exactly what a Hindu believes uh, in, in your encyclopedia or when you Google it, um, right? They may, some of that may be true, but they, they may nuance it. You know, there are a lot of different evangelicals out there. There's probably a lot of different Muslims and a lot of different Hindus. You've got to seek to understand and then bring the gospel. So that's what I had to say for tonight, just in terms of some of the key issues in seeking reformation uh, to the glory of God, that we might seek the old paths and find rest there rather than continuing to seek the newest model of evangelism, church planting, missions, um, and only makes us restless, disoriented, more confused, and certainly not glorifying the Lord. Why don't we rise for prayer? Our great God and heavenly Father, we do thank thee, O Lord, that thy gospel has reached even us. We thank thee that thou wast pleased, uh, in most of our cases, to send an ambassador, to send us to hear an ambassador, in one way to bring us and them together, and that thou wast pleased to send thy spirit to effectually draw us, to change our hearts, to give us the ability to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as he's been offered to us in the gospel. Lord, we thank thee for our great salvation. We thank thee that thou hast other sheep besides us. We thank thee that thou hast called us as a body to be engaged in taking the gospel into places where it's not been proclaimed and seeking to proclaim it more faithfully in those places where it has come only in part and only in a truncated way Oh, we pray, O oh Lord, that thou wouldst reform thy church in the midst of the years, that thou wouldst restore and revive, uh, that thy knowledge might be spread throughout the seas. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.